All right. Welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cavus Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, civil jurisdiction already is replacing that of the military in some criminal cases. It's a movement that has been taking hold not just in the United States, but in several other Western and NATO countries, notably Norway, where a civil trial was just concluded in the matter of the 2018 loss of a frigate. What are some of the implications of the movement in the U.S.? We'll talk with veteran attorney Rob Butch Bracknell for some insight. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The long-running midlife RCOH, refueling and complex overhaul of the aircraft carrier USS George Washington was declared complete May 25th when the U.S. Navy accepted a redelivery of the ship after successful sea trials. GW entered Newport News shipbuilding in mid-2017 to begin the overhaul, which was then scheduled to be completed in August 2021 at an overall cost of $4.6 billion. But the job was plagued by a series of funding issues, problems associated with the pandemic, and serious crew morale and quality of life issues. GW now will begin a series of training qualifications and transfer back to Japan in 2024, where she was the U.S. Navy's forward-deployed carrier from 2008 to 2015. The aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford arrived at Oslo May 24th, the first U.S. carrier to visit the Norwegian capital in 65 years. Earlier at sea, the ship hosted a high-level Norwegian delegation. The visit drew the ire of Moscow, with the Russians calling the visit an illogical and harmful demonstration of power. The Japan-based carrier USS Ronald Reagan has begun her first Western Pacific Patrol of the Year, and for the first time in some time, two U.S. carriers are operating at the same time in the Western Pacific. USS Nimitz called it Sasebo, Japan, during the G7 summit and now is operating in the South China Sea. The Russian intelligence ship Ivan Kurz reportedly was attacked by small unmanned surface vessels in the Black Sea about May 25th. Social media posts show the ship returning to Sevastopol May 26th, but showing no noticeable signs of damage. In Turkey, the Hazar Rice, second of Turkey's new Rice-class Type 214TN Air Independent Propulsion Submarines, was launched May 25th at Galchik Naval Shipyard. The first-in-class Piri Rice continues on sea trials. Four more subs are being built under a 2011 2 billion euro agreement with Germany's ThyssenKrupp Marine Systems. In American new ship news, General Dynamics' electric boat on May 23rd was awarded a $1.07 billion contract for long lead items for the yet-to-be-named Virginia-class submarine SSN-812 and SSN-813. Award of the SSN-812 contract had been held up by a legal dispute between the Navy and General Dynamics over an indemnification issue regarding the submarines. One of the two subs, the Navy has not said which one, will be a special mission submarine. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced in New York on May 25th that the future Virginia-class submarine, 
SSN 809 will be named Long Island. And General Dynamics NASCO on May 19th received a $736 million contract modification to build the yet-to-be-named Fleet Oiler TAO213. The ship will be the ninth ship of the John Lewis class, all built by NASCO in San Diego. And Navajo TATS-6, first of a new class of towing, salvage, and rescue ships for the U.S. Navy's Military Sealift Command, was launched May 24th at Bollinger Shipyard in Homa, Louisiana. Bollinger is building four more, while Austell USA will also build five TATS ships. And perhaps pointedly, since this is Memorial Day, the U.S. Navy confirmed on May 25th that the wreck of the destroyer Mannard L. Abilie DD-733 has been found in Japanese waters near Okinawa. The wreck at a depth of 4,500 feet was located last December by the Lost 52 Project, an organization that searches for sunken U.S. Navy submarines from World War II. The Abilie was sunk April 12, 1945, while on radar picket duty off Okinawa. She was struck by two Japanese kamikazes, the second one a piloted, rocket-powered Oka flying bomb. Abilie was sunk in about three minutes with the loss of 84 American sailors. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. As we mentioned last week, there was an interesting development in Norway when a civil court tried a Norwegian Navy officer for negligence in the 2018 collision and sinking of the frigate Helga Ingstad. Norway only recently instituted changes to its laws allowing civilian jurisdiction over military matters. The officer was found guilty. The Norwegian Navy is not happy with the situation. Similar moves have been taking place in the U.S., where new provisions stripping commanding officers of certain judicial functions and prosecutorial duties covering a number of offenses, including sexual assault, were included in the newly passed 2023 Defense Authorization Act. It is likely more changes will be suggested in the future. With us to give us some insight into, the, into these issues is Rob Butch Bracknell, a Norfolk, Virginia-based attorney, well familiar with both the U.S. military and NATO countries such as Norway. Welcome to the podcast, Butch. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Chris. Okay, so you and I talked uh, a few days ago about this. I know you've been looking into this Norwegian situation. Um, read, read, reading through all these, uh, your notes, um, you've gone into some detail. What really struck you about the situation in Norway? Um, so the situation, what really struck me is that this is a civil court, not a military court. You know, we in the United States forces get so accustomed to the UCMJ and the civilian court taking cognizance over a military matter. It's really, really unusual. One of the cases that you and I discussed was uh, the Fat Leonard um, um, debacle where the Department of Justice came in and basically sort of told the Navy to stand down, we got it from here. That is pretty unusual. Usually the uh, DOD and the services are able to, to run herd over their own forces. Uh, that's not the case in Norway. They don't have a, a separate military judicial system the way that we do and the way that Canada does and some of our other allies. They've got um, a system that's integrated where the civilian courts have jurisdiction over military matters like this. What, um, what you know, really struck me is this, there was a lot of reporting on the fact that this uh, young officer who was basically in the Navy parlance, who was the officer of the deck, he had, you know, he had, the, he had responsibility for the direction of the ship in the absence of the cabin. And it's not clear where the, cap the captain was. Uh, the captain was probably, you know, 
to sleep or having a meal or below decks doing some other work or something like that. But he had responsibility for the ship when, uh, when it collided with the tanker. Um, the media has described him as being found guilty of negligence. More specifically, I sort of drilled down on that in Article 148 of the General Penal, uh, Civil Penal Code of Norway. And what's important here is that they're applying the same uh, Civil Penal Code section to this sailor, this officer, this naval officer, as they would a maritime ship captain or a pleasure boat operator or a sailboat operator or a sail charter or a fisherman. Uh, it says any person who causes, and there's a bunch of different things there uh, that you can get charged with, but in this case, it's maritime uh, damage. And this is kind of surprising to me. You, they can be subject to imprisonment for a term of not less a mandatory minimum of two years of confinement, not exceeding 21 years. That is a pretty tough sentence for uh, for a case of negligence. Um, and then the, that uh, section is amplified by another section of the Norwegian Civil Code, Section 151, that says, well, when it's caused by negligence, the offender should be liable to fines or imprisonment for a term not to exceeding three years, not to a term not to exceed three years. So essentially, the mandatory minimum of two years and when it's negligence not to exceed three years. So in Norway, you can get between two and three years for the offense of essentially what we would have called in the UCMJ hazarding a vessel or something like that or in the ground forces, you might call it dereliction of duty or something like that. That is, uh, this is pretty, pretty unusual to me. Um, it's really, to me, it's difficult to imagine charging the officer of the deck, but not charging the captain or the navigation officer or any other officer that was responsible for this mess up, mishap by the tradition of the Naval Service. It's very difficult because you don't get a real fact, a real rich fact base what happened here, why they chose to, to focus on one officer and not on the person that was responsible for training him. Uh, in the United States, uh, to our credit or our detriment, I don't, depending on your viewpoint, we tend to go after the captain. I mean, we tend to go after the commander um, very often. And in recent uh, U.S. cases, that's what you've seen happen is, is, um, is you know, there's been some action against um, uh, junior officers who are responsible for particular negligent acts, but the, the Navy has really sort of gone full bore after the captains in those cases. That was one of the, so, one of the Norwegian, the Norwegian chief of Navy um, complained about this, this trial. One of the, one of the aspects was that there were a number of officers who were charged initially. They dropped charges against everybody except this one relatively junior officer. He was the only one actually tried. Yeah. I mean, and what the, the, one of the questions to me is um, when you have a civil judge and in this case, a civil prosecutor is the, is the person who decides to bring the charges. What is their basis? So this is a special case, right? Um, it's not like almost any other maritime case. Navies are different. Um, so you have to, you know, when you're making a charging decision or you're making findings of fact, you have to do so against the background of, of the unique nature of military service where failure um, or there are certain risks that you can take uh, in civilian uh, marine practice that you might not take in naval practice and vice versa. So I guess one of the questions I have is what, what real experience, real practical experience did this prosecutor have in differentiating between ordinary other maritime hazarding cases and a naval maritime hazarding case? And the same with the judge, you know, did he really, or do these folks really have the, rich history and experience that they might need to make meaningful and credible judgments in this context because you know you don't want to let the military off the hook too much but 
there are pressures in uh, in operating naval vessels that just aren't there in other types of vessels. Failure is not an option. Your service culture tells you that this is the most important thing ever. The movies tell us this, and not you know you hardly ever see a lot of movies about uh, civilian mariners or sailboat charters, but you see lots and lots of movies about the unique stresses that are on a military bridge in a ship at war. So I just wonder how much of that stuff was taken into account when the charging decision was made and when the, uh, you know, when the verdict was rendered, was there sufficient, um, was there training and experience and understanding of the unique nature of, of a naval collision or naval maritime operations, which led to this collision that might have been useful in, uh, in factoring into the ultimate decision. Does that, does that kind of make sense? No, it does. And so, you know, in, in the United States, um, this issue has been coming up virtually every year now for a while. Um, among others, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York uh, has been championing the, the, um, the topic of civil jurisdiction or changing the, just taking it out of the chain of command in the military, particularly in, in cases of sexual assault. Um, and usually when this topic is talked about in the U.S., it revolves around sexual assault based, assault cases. Uh, like I said at the top, uh, an, another provision um, expanding this this authority was included in the in the just passed um, Defense Authorization Act. But I do know that uh, up on the Hill, her original amendment and her original intent was far more um, widespread than just this sort of cases. And and the bill doesn't just is not just limited to sexual assault cases, it's other cases as well. But um, other folks on the Hill, I mean, even, especially on, even in the, the uh, Democrat side, uh, pushed back against that. And uh, it, it, was, it was dialed back. The scope of the whole effort this year was dialed back, but it's gonna come back again. And you think of all these cases that, I mean, the Navy in particular, doesn't have a great reputation for looking in, into its own screw ups to their problems, to their issues. Um, you know, even you think about the destroyer collisions from a few years ago, that's a, I mean, people died in both collisions of John S. McCain and the Fitzgerald. Um, that's the kind of case where you could certainly see if there was some civil jurisdiction over that, this becomes manslaughter, it becomes some sort of murder trial, it becomes something else. But it, like you just said, we're talking about naval ship handling, handling, ship handling of not just a ship, but a naval ship. The Navy did its investigations. A lot of people had problems with it. They still, you know, I mean, people were fired and a few flag officers lost their job. Um, but then you have things like the Bonham Richard fire. Um, in there, I mean, a lot of people were found culpable, but the investigation took an awful long time. Uh, it's a lot of people feel it wasn't, it shouldn't happen to begin with. What happens when a civil jurisdiction takes over those, those cases? So you, yeah, just, you, you, you just right, touched, on, question. It. You I, just I, touched yeah. on it. So yeah, my concern is, is not necessarily the forum or, or whatever, it's that the correct norms are being applied. So, and you sort of touched on one of the, one of the reasons that Senator Gillibrand has sort of come off the top ropes on the issue of sexual assault is her perception is exactly what you identified a second ago. Hey guys, we've been letting you work this out for many, a long, long time now. This is not a new issue and you guys just don't seem to be taking it seriously enough. You don't seem to be 
and, and just the military sexual assault is a super complex problem. Um, you know, you very often, um, some of the cases are completely and utterly unwinnable. And there, we take cases in the UCMJ to trial that a civilian DA would never, ever, ever indict because he does an evaluation of the evidence up front and says, yep, uh, my witness has credibility problems. Um, this factor, this factor, and this factor, I'm never going to get beyond a reasonable doubt or the likelihood of me getting beyond reasonable doubt is so unlikely that I don't have the resources to apply against this problem. DOD doesn't suffer from that. DOD is terrified of, uh, of having yet another military sexual assault case splashed up on the front page of the Washington Post and New York Times. And so they want to go for broke. They kind of, I've heard it myself when I was a prosecutor and when I was a staff judge advocate is, well, let's just take the case forward and let the jury sort it out, which I think is just the ultimate cowardice whatsoever is you're, instead of as a commander exercising the discretion over whether to take a case forward or not, you refuse to take, make that hard call. And you're going to shift it off to a panel of, you know, five officers to decide for, to make this hard decision for you that you're not willing to make yourself. Oh my God, that is so antithetical to the moral courage that we should be expecting of commanders. But the fact is, there is a perception out there that we that DOD has mishandled this for so long that the, some of the political leaders are like, okay, enough. You know, you've had plenty of chances to to uh, to press forward with this in a responsible manner. I don't perceive that you're pressing forward with this in a responsible manner which may, some of that may be overblown, but some of it may be accurate. Um, sometimes, you know, we get what we deserve in this regard. So when, when, when uh, civilians like um, Senator Gillibrand come in and they want to exercise more oversight, it's usually because we've earned it, right? Almost all the time that you see in every context where you see Congress finally getting um, um, animated enough to say, we really need to oversee this, is because there's been a series of screw-ups where the, where the services didn't handle their business correctly to begin with. You see it in finance. You see it in appropriations. You see it in, you know, the, like the School of the Americas. It took that before, it took the debacle of the School of the Americas before there was legislation involved that required, required us to vet who it is that we're training uh, when we do security cooperation, for example. So, you know, sometimes we bring this stuff on ourselves. Um, and I would really hate to think that this is one of those, those cases where the Navy won't be um, ultimately won't be trusted to police its own with regard to holding people accountable for poor uh, seamanship or poor uh, holding people accountable for poor ship handling. Or as you're seeing right now in the SEAL case that's hitting the news this week, um, holding people accountable for the way that people are trained and whether you have done your operational risk management and whether you have, you know, medical care within a reasonable um, you know, the, to, to a reasonable degree, and you've done a risk assessment, it has always been, I've always been very concerned with how cavalier we are sometimes with some of our training, and that we're willing to say, well, you know, sometimes people are going to die in training because they die in war. And, you, and I used, you used to think about that, and I would go, yeah, but what if they didn't have to? What if we could train to standard and manage the risk at the same time? Wouldn't that be a neat world to live in? And I've just always been concerned about how cavalier we are about some of these things sometimes. So um, I'll stop that and catch my breath and let you guys react to that if you'd like to. But Butch, I'll jump in. This is uh, Chris Cervello. Um, you know, it, it having worked for a number of senior officers um, and had sailors work for me, I mean, it's a very nuanced discussion that you have, right? I mean, and you, you and Chris ju just hit on it. I mean, there's the 
operational uh, duties. And so how do you parse out what belongs to the military, what belongs to civilian jurisdiction? Then you have um, sailors that are committing crimes typically on other sailors. And so where does that fall out? And the pendulum kind of shifts both ways. I mean, in some cases, it, it, as you just mentioned, it's um, that there isn't trust in the um, in the military system to handle, um, you, you know, justice and accountability. But you know, then I guess as you look from the military side, there's there's equal skepticism that the civilian um, jurisdiction would even take on some of these cases, and that you would even be able to find any accountability going that way. There doesn't seem to be an easy answer to this, right? There isn't a yes, we should have uh, you know all military. No, we should have all civilian. I mean, we're still probably years in trial cases away from figuring all this out. Do do you agree or disagree with that? that logic. No, I do. I agree with that 100%. I think there's compromises to be made out there. For a number of years now, I've come to the conclusion that I think that if you had, if you had, number one, if you had a truly independent military prosecutor taking, uh, or, or civilian prosecutor, you would see the number of cases go down because the pattern of conduct for prosecutorial discretion would start to look a lot more like civilian jurisdictions. For example, take a city, any city, I don't care which one, pick one, Nashville, Tennessee, and go in and compare the numbers of sexual assaults reported, in other words, cases opened versus cases that make it to court. And I think that you'll see the number of cases that make it to court is fractional because, um, because the evidence is tough in these cases. Very often it's person v. person testimonial evidence where one person is not immensely more credible than the other one, and you just don't have a lot of corroboration. So I think you would see be careful what you ask for in this circumstance, because an independent, a truly independent prosecutor would probably take fewer of these cases to court because of the status of the evidence. Like I was saying earlier, in the in traditional military practice, you know, the, the temptation is, well, throw it over the fence and see what happens, you know. And everyone goes, oh, the conviction rates are really, really low. The training must be awful. And it must be someone has their thumb on the system uh, on the scale. And really, one of the answers to that is, no, we're just taking cases to trial that can't be won sometimes. That we, that's just what they do. They take the cases to trial knowing that they're probably not going to be won, but knowing that a jury's verdict is going to be virtually unassailable where a commander's decision on whether to refer to cases is easy to second guess. In America, hardly anybody, we, you know, the jury, a jury verdict is still one of the things that people put a lot of faith in. People go, up. Oh, uh, jury of the peers, a jury, a jury heard this, and every and and we all still all have faith that the Sixth Amendment works more or less the way it's supposed to work. Uh, you know, that we, that's a huge longer discussion, um, separate discussion. But I, uh, you know, I'll stop there and see if you have any reactions to that. I can't help but think that all of this discussion, um, depending, you know, regardless of what side that that you're on, there is either. Um, a lack of trust. There is either, uh, you know, from the outside looking in or from the inside looking out. Um, and, and I mean, I it would seem to me again that like th there is um, traditional institutions, whether it's the military, whether it's you know the judicial branch and in, in the civilian world, there there's just a lot less trust in general. And so it, it has now become natural that when you don't get the accountability that you're after that you start to question some of the um the institutions and the practices that have 
you know, seem to work for, for years. I mean, obviously if you have a, a young man or young woman that you believe is wronged for whatever the reason is, you, you know, people want that person to get justice. Um, I, I just don't know that uh, there is a clear path, you know, that is better than what we currently have. I mean, I think this is what the the current group of military leaders are wrestling with, right? I mean, do they lose, does the chain of command lose um, good order, their ability to hold good order and discipline? I mean, there are some that, you know, in candid moments would tell you that they would love to have this off their plate, right? I mean, if they didn't have to deal with it and they could just push this to the side and let somebody else deal with it, they, they would love to have that. But there's not a clear way that, uh, or not a clear thought that that would make it any better. So again, a long way of saying, I, I just, I don't know that you get to a definitive answer and I'm not sure that you legislate your way through this. I mean, it, it's almost like you're going to have to go trial and error between the leadership side and and the, the judge advocate side. Yeah. One of the things that I've been considering for a long time, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I've entertained the thought. First of all, I think you're exactly right. I think that if you put if you took a lot of commanders, and I won't say every commander, but I think if you took a lot of commanders and you gave them truth serum and then wrapped them up in Wonder Woman's lasso of truth or something like that and said, hey, tell me about your how you feel about sexual assault. Is that really a good order and discipline issue? I think in most, a lot of them would say, please take that away from me. It's such a distractor to me. You know, the costs that are associated with litigation come out of my operating budget and I'm flying witnesses from point A to point B. And now I got to fly this, this other witness from California to North Carolina for a court martial. Oh my God, how much is that ticket? Oh, there's $7,000 in my operating budget. Well, there's $7,000 of ammo I don't get to use on a training range this year, et cetera, et cetera. They would love it if you took some of these things off of them. But they, but, but I believe the temptation to say, no, it's a good order and discipline issue remains because every commander before them has always maintained that it's a good order and discipline issue and they don't want their their authority undermined in any other way so they see any invasion into their command authority as a as a bad invasion into their command authority and they don't want to give up command authority in other contexts so they um so they resist it in that context but i think really in a moment of truth you might learn that they were just you know, they, they give that up if they had a chance. The other point I have on that is, you know, is some of this stuff, I honestly, DOD has brought it on itself a little bit. You take certain cases like that Haditha case, for example, and I, I, I know that case a little bit because I, I worked in that area and sort of helped facilitate some of the trial prep after. I'm sorry, um, which, which case again? The Haditha case uh, from 2004, the Marine Corps Haditha case. That case would have never seen the light of day if it weren't for Time Magazine. It just would have never come up. Well, and you ask yourself why, like, and so then it became, you know, people lose faith in the Marine Corps' ability to police itself because everyone can see that that case would have essentially been, never been noticed or would have been buried, but for the fact that there was media reporting on it. Take the AAV mishap that we had a couple of years ago out at Camp Pendleton where uh, those eight young men, the Marine Corps, and I love it, but I'm at start with its, its toughest critic, had to get, had to be led kicking and screaming to hold General Castelvi accountable in any way. Um, he was not going to get relieved of division command, based, except for the fact that, you know, people kept kicking and making noise about the fact that the unit had just was just unprepared and so many bad things happened that should have never happened, any one of which could have broken the chain of causation that caused those eight young men to, to wind up in a watery grave at the bottom of the ocean in what should have been an otherwise routine training event. 
Um, so we do these things to ourselves. We cause people to lose faith in us when we don't, you know, Castelli could have been fired right away. And then what did we do with him? We went and made him the Inspector General of the Marine Corps. That doesn't make any, these are unforced errors and they cause people to lose faith in your ability to self-regulate. Is there, a, before we go, is there an issue in terms of juries? So a jury of your peers. If you're talking about a criminal matter, that's one thing. If you're talking about professional conduct, like negligence in the operation of a ship, um, what do you see any issues with that? I do, and I so yes, and, and you so you're reading from my show notes, I think. <laughs> I do think it's important that the finders of fact have context that is important to make hard factual determinations themselves in the proper context. In other words, if you took a jury, let's say it was, you know, let's say you had a negligence, a dereliction of duty case based on the AAV, um, the sinking of the AAV that killed the eight uh, Marines and corpsmen out, out of Camp Pendleton, um, a jury that you pick off the street out of the city of Nashville, Tennessee, or Portland, Oregon, is going to be ill-equipped to understand the context. They're just not. But if you put um, a bunch of infantry officers and AV officers and armor officers and artillery officers and logistics officers, folks who've been inside that machine and who have been on those small boats launching from an amphibious ship and understand how hairy it can get real quick, it gives it puts negligence in context. So what might appear to be a, a departure from a a reasonable norm in a civilian context is not that unreasonable in some other military context. So I do think it's really, really important that our fact finders, whether they're jury or judges in whatever context, whether they're in a civilian trial of a military person or a military jury, that we keep some expertise there, some that with unique training and experience that really can give meaningful judgment to these really hard factual determinations. If you take just an ordinary civilian jury in that case, you're, I mean, you're going to get, you're going to get liability 10 times out of 10, whereas it's just not fair because the military context really is unique. I think you're right. I also think that um, there's a lot of issues here where we're never going to solve this. Uh, these are, it's a very tough issue from all sides. I think regardless of where you're coming from, uh, this is a tough issue, but it's an issue that's going to continue for the, for the foreseeable future. Um, folks, uh, our guest has been Rob Butch Brecknell. He's a Norfolk-based uh, uh, attorney who's really given us some good insight into some of the issues. Thanks for being on the podcast, Butch. It, you know, we need to talk about this stuff to understand it, and we have need to understand it to eventually reach something like problem, like solutions. Um, so I'm grateful to have, to contribute one little drop of water into the bucket of dialogue on this, and I, and I appreciate the, you having me on and giving me that opportunity. Well, thank you, sir. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Now, Mr. Cervello, with some thoughts on how one U.S. senator is holding up nearly 200 flag and general officer nominations. Thanks, Chris. My squawk this week builds on a Friday column in The Hill, written by a friend of the pod and regular defense and aerospace contributor, Dr. Dove Zakheim. President Biden announced this week that he was indeed nominating Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown Jr. to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This should be the start of a summer jobs rotation for joint and service leaders across the force, except nomination holds have grounded the entire process to a halt. Brown's nomination brings the number to 186 that have stalled in the Senate due to Senator Tommy Tuberville's blanket hold on military promotions. 
As many of our listeners know, the tradition of senatorial courtesy provides that any senator can put a hold on a confirmation of any executive branch nominee for any reason at all. That said, senators rarely put blanket holds on military promotions, which are routine, dealt with in packages, and normally command the body's unanimous consent. The Senate addresses individual promotions only when there are specific concerns about a particular nominee. If press reports are true, Tuberville has little support among his Senate colleagues. Republican leader Mitch McConnell has made it clear that he does not support the hold. But thus far, the Senate has done nothing to break it for fear that it would jeopardize a hollowed tradition. These are serious times, and they require serious actions on the part of our national leaders. One senator's crippling of the military promotion system should not be allowed to stand simply because of tradition. Heck, it used to be tradition that members did what's best for the country and kept politics out of national security issues. Obviously, that is no longer the case. Senators of both parties can no longer sit by as promotions and rotations are held hostage by one man. Our country faces a growing Chinese threat and an ongoing Russian aggression in Europe. The majority and minority leaders must step in and end Tuberville's hold. The ridiculousness has gone on long enough. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishus Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Uh-huh.